0: Please open up your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 10 verse 46 is where we are going to begin. And we'll be going through chapter 11 verse 25. We've got quite a bit to cover in the Gospel of Mark today. As I was plotting out the preaching schedule for the Gospel of Mark, I of course wanted to set up so that Resurrection Sunday would land on the final chapter in Mark where we have the resurrection of Christ recorded. And as I walked back from that point, I was very pleased to see that the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ is here in the passage that we have for Christmas Sunday. For the baby that was born in the stall in Bethlehem was born to be Israel's Messiah. And while Jesus Christ has been rather tight-lipped about the fact that he is the Messiah of Israel up until this point in the Gospel, Here, in what we'll be looking at today, we'll see the first advent of Jesus Christ no longer being secret. The fact that Jesus is the Christ is now going to be proclaimed, it's going to be celebrated, it's going to be recognized. No longer is it a time for keeping that quiet. And so, the first advent of Jesus Christ is powerfully presented in our text for today. But it begins with the last healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has recorded for us many miracles of healing, and this one is the last one that is in the Gospel. We come to the final week of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry as we come to the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. And so Almost one-third of the entire Gospel of Mark is taken up with these final days in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ, showing how significant, how important that Passion Week is, beginning with the triumphal entry. So from now until Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about these last days that Jesus Christ was with his disciples ministering in Jerusalem. Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem, and he's gotten to Jericho when we pick up the story there in verse 46. So allow me to read for us the first part of our text this morning, the end of chapter 10, starting in verse 46. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, he is calling for you. Get up. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is a wonderful account. You get some nice eyewitness details here in Mark's account. And this is really a heartwarming story, and I think it really brings out the purpose for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he came to be the Christ of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, but the Christ, the Messiah, was not just here to rule and to reign over his enemies, but he was here to restore what had been lost. Sin had come into the world and had brought much suffering into our lives. And here we have the story of the blind man. Interestingly, this is the only name that we have for a man who was healed by Jesus. Out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the people who were healed, this is the only place where we have the name of the man recorded. Why did Mark choose to record Bartimaeus' name? Perhaps he was known to the church in Rome. Perhaps he was a well-known follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, or perhaps he had moved to Rome. Whatever the case, we know this particular man as Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. Begging was the normal occupation for the blind. There was little else that was available for them to do in that society and in that culture. And his name actually means son of Timaeus so interesting that Mark not only says Bartimaeus, but then he goes on and clarifies for his non-Aramaic-speaking crowd that Bar means son of, and so son of Timaeus is actually a translation of his name. And you can put yourself in Bartimaeus' shoes. It's just another day of begging outside the gates of Jericho. Jericho is about 18 miles away from Jerusalem. And this is his home. This is where he probably spent most of his time. And he's there and he hears a a lot of people on the road. And he might expect there to be a lot of people on the road because the festival in Jerusalem is coming up and pilgrims are making their way towards Jerusalem. But there's a little bit more ruckus and hubbub going on than normal with the traffic that is heading towards Jerusalem. And so he starts to ask the people around him, what's going on? And somebody tells him. Well, Jesus of Nazareth is on his way, and he's passing by. And when Bartimaeus hears that, he thinks, this is my chance. Even though it's a noisy crowd, a noisy procession, he says, I'm going to be louder than the crowd, and I'm going to make my request known. And when the people tried to shush him and say, you're not important, you're not the focus right now, just be quiet and let us carry on with our parade, He would not be silenced. You can kind of picture them trying to put their hands over his mouth and he's fighting and, and just yelling out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now there's some other unique things about this passage besides the fact that we are told the name of the man who was healed. But notice how the man, Bartimaeus, addresses Jesus as the Son of David. Would it surprise you to find out this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that that title has been On anyone's lips no one has called Jesus the son of David up until this point the blind man is the one who gets to blow the doors off the secret and who gets to start proclaiming that Jesus is the son of David now this is true this is who Jesus is but it has been a secret Jesus told his disciples don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah but now there's a change Now we are in the final week leading up to the death of Jesus Christ and it is his open proclamation, the proclamation by the people, his own presentation of himself and his authority as the Christ that is going to lead to the confrontation. It's going to lead to the showdown. The showdown has been building up between the Jerusalem leaders of the religion of the Jews versus this Galilean prophet and neither side seems to be backing down. And Jesus is not slinking into Jerusalem, but he's going to come in a parade, a triumphant parade, proclaiming that he is the Messiah of Israel. And so it's time for the head-to-head that is going to lead to our salvation. And Bartimaeus gets to call Jesus the Son of David, and he repeats it. Not only do we have him saying it there in verse 47, but then when they silence him, he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This emphasis on Jesus as the Christ is also going to be strong in the rest of the verses that we look at this morning. And so in the previous chapter, in chapter 10 verse 14, people tried to keep the children away from Jesus because he had more important things to do than to bless children. Here, they try to keep the blind man away from Jesus because in their minds, things that are more important that are going on in the procession than healing of this blind man. But Jesus, when he hears Bartimaeus crying out, he stops. He stops the procession, he stops the parade, and he says, I want you to bring that man here. And so the cry of faith The cry of desperation reaches the ears of our Lord and he stops everything in order to hear the man's request. Now, it's probably pretty obvious that the man is blind. Usually, if you've got someone who's a blind beggar, it doesn't take you too long to figure out that they're blind. And so, when Jesus asks him, what it is that you want me to do for you, Jesus knows what he's going to say. He sees that he's blind, he knows his request, and yet he wants him to say it anyway. And that's a great lesson for us. That even though God knows what we need before we ask it, he still commands us to ask. He who asks receives. He who knocks, the door will be opened. He who seeks will find. And so he verbalizes his request that he wants to regain his sight. What do you want me to do for you? That's a great question. That's a question you should ask yourself from God when you go to your prayer time. As if God is saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? And you tell God, this is what I want. Now, in contrast to James and John, who came to Jesus, they kind of found a a good time. They thought they could corner him and get him to give them their request. What did James and John ask for? Well, James and John already had their sight, so they didn't have to ask for that. They already had working legs, so they didn't have to ask for that. They already had perfect health, but what they wanted was positions of authority and power. And Jesus did not grant the request of James and John. He gave them some teaching, and it was a very useful teaching for us. But Bartimaeus, a man who does not have what we have, he asks for what you enjoy every day. You are here, and you have the gift of sight, and what a wonderful gift that is. And if you didn't have the gift of sight, what would you want more from God than to have that restored to you? For those who are well, normalcy seems like a bare minimum. But for the ill, normalcy is a great, great gift. Now, when Jesus heals him, he tells him, your faith has made you well. Now that phrase that's translated made you well is actually a translation of what we know as the word for salvation. The Greek word sozo means to be saved. And so he's telling him your faith has saved you. And he's not saying your faith has saved you spiritually, although that would be an application of what he's saying, for physical healings are a portrait, a picture of spiritual salvation. But the word sozo, to save, In the original language, it wasn't just a religious word. It was a word that could be used of being saved, rescued, out of any context. Now, we tend to hear the word saved and we think of it in a spiritual sense. But, you know, if you were out lost at sea and you see a ship coming, you'd yell out, we're saved! Because that has that idea. And so here he is rescued, he is saved from his physical malady by his faith. Now... This has come up a number of times in the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of Mark, that faith is the means by which God's grace comes to us. This, of course, is the spiritual portrait of spiritual salvation, that it's by faith that our souls are saved, just as it was by faith that these physical salvations, these physical healings, came to people. And I'd like to point this out. It doesn't take a lot of faith to be saved. It just takes faith in the right person. It doesn't take a lot of faith to be saved. Your faith just has to be directed in the right direction. And if your faith is looking towards Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. You don't have to have a perfect faith. You don't have to have a mature faith. You don't have to have a fully formed, growing faith. You just have to have faith. And just that smallest spark of faith is able to save because God's power works through faith. It's not your faith that saves you. It's God's power that saves you, and your faith is in God's power. Faith in faith is an impotent thing, but faith in God is immeasurably powerful, and that's going to be a key theme throughout our passage this morning as well. When he got his vision back, what did he do? I love the way the chapter ends there. He immediately recovered his sight, and he followed him on the way. Now, Jesus said, go your way. So Jesus said, you can do what you like now. You've got what you want, do what you like. And the man thought, well, what I want to do is I want to follow you. Wherever you're going, that's my way. And this is a great example for all of us, for discipleship. That when God gives us what we want, then what do we want after that? Well, we just want to spend time with God. We just want to be with him. He doesn't go back to see his family. We don't know anything about his family. If he had family that was still around, that still cared for him. He doesn't go back and see his home. It probably wasn't much of a home to see anyway, being a beggar. But the first thing that he wants to do after he's recovered his sight is continue on the road with Jesus. Bartimaeus is a great example of faith, gratitude, and joy. How much joy he probably added to this procession as they continued along. He became the front cheerleader for Jesus then as they made their way on the long trek, the day-long trek from Jericho to Bethlehem. About 18 miles, like I said. So to walk 18 miles is probably a good six hours of walking, especially since this is more uphill walking as you go up to Jerusalem. And... If they took their time, took a couple of breaks, it was an all-day trip from Jericho to Jerusalem. And that brings us to our next chapter, chapter 11, where we do get to the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. This is a very special day in the life of Jesus Christ that all four gospel writers record. There's only two events in the life of Christ, aside from his death and resurrection, that are recorded in all the gospels. This is one of those two, because it was on this day that prophecy was fulfilled. It was on this day that God presented to his people the promised one, the coming one, the Savior, their Messiah, and this is how God did it. Let's read the passage in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, here, these ten verses, and then the transition from verse eleven to twelve there at the end. These ten verses record for us a very significant day. Now, Mark doesn't unfold all the significance of it. He leaves some of it for us to discover on our own, even as the disciples themselves had to discover the meaning of everything that happened on this day afterwards. The Bible tells us in other passages that record this event that the disciples didn't understand why they were doing everything that they did, but then later on they saw, oh, there was some additional meaning in what was going on here than even we were aware of. Now, they were aware that this was the time to proclaim the coming of Jesus as the one who would fulfill the kingdom of our father David. Now, the shout Hosanna that comes there at the end, it's actually a prayer. It means save now. And Hosanna as a prayer then also became kind of a praise It was used as a prayer and a praise, recognizing God as the one who is the source of Israel's strength and salvation. This is why Psalm 118 was read during our scripture reading because there we have in one of the songs of ascent that would have been sung regularly by pilgrims who were traveling up to Jerusalem, these words that are inspiring the shouts of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now before we unpack that some more, let's go back to the beginning in verse 1 that they come to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and it's close to the Mount of Olives. Now, there's really not much of a need to mention the Mount of Olives here, since he's already mentioned Bethphage and Bethany, but I think he mentions it because the Mount of Olives has great Messianic significance, not only for the first coming of Christ but especially for the second advent of Jesus Christ. And so he's bringing in the Mount of Olives here as kind of a look forward to the future coming of Jesus Christ when he will descend on the Mount of Olives from which he ascended. But as they're here, they're getting ready for the final two miles of the journey, and Jesus is not going to walk into Jerusalem as he has always done. This was the normal way for pilgrims to travel, is by walking. And Jesus, instead of walking in, he's going to ride in. But he's not going to ride in on a horse. He's going to ride in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Mark doesn't record for us why Jesus does it this way. But the other gospel writers do, and since You know, it's my job to fill in some of the things that are implied and to help you find the things that you're supposed to find if you do your digging into Scripture. Let's go back to that prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. So keep your marker there in Mark's Gospel and come back to Zechariah chapter 9. Among the twelve, as they are called, the minor prophets, we have many messianic prophecies in the book of Zechariah one of which is fulfilled here in Mark chapter 11 on the day of Jesus's triumphal entry. Now, the chapter of Zechariah 9 opens with, as you see the title in the ESV translation, judgment on Israel's enemies. Now, for those of you who have never had a foreign army invade your nation, who've never had a foreign army trample your fields or burn your house or kill your sons, it's hard for you to understand the, the military mindset of the Jewish people and many of the prophecies concerning their Savior. That the Messiah of Israel is a defender of the people of Israel from foreign invaders and from foreign oppression. And so when we're talking about judgment on Israel's enemies, don't think, well, this is just not very nice. It's not about being nice when you're defending your country from people who want to kill you. It's about being strong. It's about being brave. It's about being courageous. It's about being powerful and bringing vengeance upon those who have done evil. And so that's the context here as the chapter opens up. But... When we get to verse 9, there's this change in tone that instead of the defeat of the oppressor, instead of the military victories that are going on there, now it's focusing on the peace that is going to come as a result of God's judgment on the enemies. And this is what it says, Zechariah 9.9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here is the key prophecy about the humble coming of Israel's king when you expect the king to be coming in righteous fury and judgment, not on the back of a donkey, but on the back of a war horse, a war stallion, instead we have this unusual picture of the king of Jerusalem coming with salvation and righteousness in humility. There's some mystery here that the disciples and the Jewish people didn't understand about Messiah, And this is a marvelous fulfillment for them to be able to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and yet he has come in humility, not as the righteous judge. He will come as the righteous judge. He will defeat all of Israel's enemies. But first, he has to save Israel from her sins. Mark doesn't record the prophecy, but it's clearly the reason why Jesus Christ chooses to ride into Jerusalem in this manner. And there's a fulfillment message here that brings a lot of truth about the first coming of Jesus Christ into view and is going to set up his humble salvation in the rest of the book. Now, when they started spreading out their cloaks and leafy branches, Upon the ground for Jesus and his mount to ride over as they're entering into Jerusalem, this is the act of hailing a coming king. You could jot down Second Kings chapter nine, verse 13. In Second Kings 9:13, we've got Jehu's inauguration. Jehu became king over Israel, And at his inauguration, we have this record of them doing just this type of activity, spreading out this welcome mat for the new king. It's like laying out the red carpet. They didn't lay out the red carpet. They laid out their cloaks and the leafy branches to hail the coming king. Now, let's talk a little bit about that coming king. We read earlier from Psalm 118, so we won't take the time to go back to there, but I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. It was always God's intention... For the people of Israel to have a king. Now, God did not bring a king in the days of Moses. He did not bring a king in the 400 years of the judges because God had some important lessons for the people of Israel to learn before they were ready for his appointed king. And that is that God himself, the Father, is the true king of Israel. He is their lawgiver, he is their judge, he is the one who wins victories for them in battle. All the things that you would expect a king to do, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, all in one person, and that was God in heaven. However, the people of Israel didn't follow God's laws. They didn't listen to God's words. They didn't follow his judgments. Instead, they followed after their own ways. And so the people of Israel had to learn that they were not able to submit to God as king. And therefore, what the people of Israel needed was a mediator, a mediatorial kingdom, where there would be a human king who did submit himself to the law of God and the judgments of God and who executed God's will And that human king that God chose was David, a man after God's heart. And so King David, he followed God's law. He executed God's judgments and he fought in the battles that God told him to fight and he fought how God told him to fight with the Spirit of God. That is a portrait, a picture of the ultimate king. Not only the king of the Jews, but the king of all of the nations who would submit himself perfectly to God the Father, who could therefore be the ruler of this earth. God makes all of that clear progressively in steps and stages throughout the Old Testament. I just gave you the big summary. But I want you to see the promise to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 11. So this is called the Davidic covenant. And God gives a special covenant to David, his chosen king, giving prophetic insight to the people of Israel as to what God's plan is, not only for the salvation of Israel, but for the salvation of the world. And so it says this, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 11, God says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Sounds like Zechariah chapter 9. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. And you could also translate that as seed. The very important idea starting in Genesis, carrying through the covenants that the promises of God go through chosen offspring, chosen seed. I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." So Solomon partly fulfills this promise in that he's a man who comes from David's own body and who God establishes his kingdom and Solomon builds a house for God's worship and yet he's not able to be a king forever. And so there's a future greater fulfillment than Solomon. Solomon's like the down payment on this and then the full payment comes in the reign of Jesus Christ. It says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So this idea of being the son of God is connected in the Davidic covenant with the kingdom, with the Messiah, the one who is the mediatorial king, like the prince, underneath the real king, who is God the Father. All right, well, I wanted you to see that, but we've got to keep moving here this morning. So let's go back to Mark chapter 11. Now, as we saw, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was already late in the day. He'd been traveling for the day and doing other things as well. And so he didn't have a lot of time to do what he had come to do, but he was going to save that for the next day. You see, when in verse 11, Jesus enters the temple and he looks around. He's not looking around like a tourist. Not like, oh, this is my first time here, and oh, wow, aren't the buildings amazing? And look at the capitals on top of those pillars. He's not there looking around as a tourist. He's looking around as an inspector. He's looking around as an overseer. He's looking around as the authority. And he does not like what he sees. And basically, in his heart and mind, he says, I'll be back tomorrow. And I'll take care of business tomorrow. So he goes out for the evening to Bethany and there he's probably safe from being arrested Uh, it's also probably with friends also it's hard to find lodging in Jerusalem at this time of year because of the millions of people who are gathering in Jerusalem and so he's staying in Bethany with the twelve and so we come then to verse 12 the following day when they came from Bethany he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. All right, so uh, here in Mark chapter 11, on the following day, he's hungry. Now, we don't know why he's hungry. Maybe, you know, uh, they got up early, didn't have time for breakfast. But uh, for whatever reason, he's hungry. He's hungry. And he sees a fig tree in leaf. Now, notice that Mark points out that it's not the season for figs. And so this has made many commentators of Scripture have questions as, well, why did Jesus expect there to be figs if it's not the season for figs? And why is he disappointed? Is this some kind of unrealistic expectation on behalf of Jesus that he thinks that there should be figs when there shouldn't be figs? Is this unreasonable And that's what some people have accused Jesus of doing here. Those who are non-Christians, who are critics, who are liberal scholars, they think that this is a, a rather unworthy action by Jesus to curse this fig tree when it's not even the season for figs to begin with. And so, there's been a number of explanations given as to why Jesus is not being unreasonable in this case. And if you're interested in those explanations, I'd be happy to share them with you. But they don't interest me that much because I'm not that concerned about the fig tree. If you love fig trees and you are disturbed by the fact that Jesus curses this particular fig tree, well, get over it. It's God's world, He can do with it what He wants. And there's been a lot of destruction that has taken place in this world as a result of sin. And and this one fig tree, it's cursed for a reason. Not just because Jesus is hungry. He curses this fig tree as an illustration. Mark has placed this here, because Jesus did it here, in this particular time, in this particular place, because this is an illustration of the people of Israel and their worship at the temple. We just saw Jesus arrive at the temple and look around and the same condition that he sees in the temple is the same condition that he sees in this fig tree. That is, that the people of Israel looked like they had spiritual life. They looked like they were producing good fruit for God. If you just looked at their religion from a distance without examining the heart of the matter you would think that there was good fruit being produced in Judaism. I mean, look at all of the pilgrims, look at all of the activity, look at all of the focus on God, all the honoring of the temple. It looks like it's pretty good, but it's not. There is no real fruit being born by the Jews even though they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the teachers of the law, they devoted themselves to, to keeping God's law, and yet the heart is missing. The fruit is not there. And so this curse upon the fig tree is actually a prophetic warning about the destruction of the temple, which is imminent. We'll get back to that as we continue through the next section here. All right, so we looked at the fig tree in verses 12 through 14, And in verses 15 to 18, we're looking at the temple once again. So let's come back to the temple in verses 15 through 18. When they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer For all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Whenever it was evening, they would go back out. Here, their final week, Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. This is the only action of violence that we see coming from the Lord Jesus Christ in anywhere in recorded history. In his 33 years, he was the gentle healer. He was the teacher. He was never harsh towards anyone. And, and yet here, he is driving people out. And this is not an easy job. If you went to a busy marketplace, you know, you go down to the hay market on a Saturday and... You start driving people away, I mean, that's going to take some violence. It tells us he's overturning the tables of the money changers, and he's not allowing people to carry stuff through the temple. The temple had become, in this outer court of the Gentiles, a place of merchandise, and this was for the convenience of the travelers. Travelers were coming from all over, not only from Israel, but even from outside of Israel to be there for the festival. They didn't want to bring their own lamb with them for the feast of the Passover. They wanted to come and just buy the lamb. And then they had the temple tax that good Jewish people would pay. And the temple tax, according to the book of Exodus, had to be paid according to a certain type of coin. And so you couldn't use your Greco-Roman coins because they had images of Roman Caesars on them and things like that. And they didn't like idolatrous images. And so there was a special coin, the Tyrian coin, that they would use to pay the temple tax. And so you had to change your normal money into that money. And so it's just a matter of convenience that there in the court of the Gentiles, this this large court, it's like 35 acres on top of the, the temple mountain, you got all these stalls set up where you can change your money and buy your dove or buy your lambs. In fact, we're told by Josephus that in one year there was 255,000 lambs that were killed for the Passover feast. And so this gives you some idea of just how much merchandising was going on during this time. Now, Jesus doesn't have any problem with people money changing or have any problem with people selling turtle doves or lambs for the temple service. What he has a problem with is the place that they're doing it. The temple is not the place. Now, the Jews, they had all this extra room inside the court of the Gentiles and they thought, well, we might as well make use of this extra space inside the court. So let me lay out for you a little bit of the scenery here. In the temple proper, you've you've got the temple itself, which is a pretty small building. It's not that large. But then outside of it, you've got the court of Israel, which is just for Jewish men. And then outside of that, you've got another court called the court of the women, where the Jewish women would enter into. And then outside of that, you've got the court of the Gentiles. And so there's a more exclusive aspect to each part of the temple. And into the temple itself and the Holy of Holies, Only one Israelite would go once per year, the high priest. But this court of the Gentiles was the place where Gentiles were allowed to come and worship God. There was one place in the world that was set aside for the worship of the creator God for all of the nations. And the Jews thought, well, I don't think it's getting used that much. We might as well just sell animals here and set up the money-changing tables. And this infuriated the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught that my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. God's house as a den of robbers. Come back with me to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7. Here we see the Lord Jesus Christ acting in his prophetic function, Condemning the sinfulness of the people of Israel, just as the prophets had done before him. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, we have these words about the temple becoming a den for robbers. Let's start in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So You can picture Jeremiah doing this in his day, very similar to what Jesus Christ would have been doing in the temple on this occasion. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old, to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail." Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your forefathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, Jeremiah, or lift up a cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves? To their own shame. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field, and the fruit of the ground, it will burn and not be quenched. We can go on, but I think that's enough to get the idea. How the Jewish people of Jesus' day must have been stung when Jesus used the words of Jeremiah to talk about them and their treatment of the temple. They thought, oh, we're not like those Jews who were exiled into Babylon. We've learned our lesson. Do you see any cakes to the queen of heaven in the temple court today? No, you don't. We've gotten rid of all that idolatry. We are worshiping the Lord with sincerity of heart, careful to obey his commandments. And Jesus says, no. You got all the leaves. It looks like you're a good tree, but there's no fruit. You don't even know what the temple is for. This is supposed to be a place of prayer, not a place for you to buy and sell. And so he drives them out. Nobody stopped him. They didn't arrest him. They were afraid of him. Maybe a lot of the Jewish people knew that what Jesus was saying was right. Maybe a lot of them felt the same way, but they didn't have any courage to do anything about it. Maybe they thought, you know, just recently they started buying and selling all these animals in the court of the temple. That doesn't seem right. But I'm not in charge of the temple. That's Caiaphas' job, so whatever. But Jesus had zeal for the house of the Lord. And he was willing to do an act when no one else was willing to do an act and to stand up for what was right in God's sight. This is throwing down the gauntlet. He's telling the rulers in Jerusalem, I'm in charge. I'm here to fix what you have messed up. And that's why they sought to kill him. It's probably this act more than any other act that Jesus did that made the determination, the final determination in the minds of the leaders in Jerusalem, he has to die. It's either him or us. It's either him or us. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So he had the crowd on his side. They were thinking, yeah, we're glad that this prophet has come along. We're glad that somebody's here to speak up against the corruption. Well, let's continue. We've got to finish this out. Verses 19 through 25. When evening came, they went out of the city, and then we come back to the fig tree. See, Mark does this. He places the cleansing of the temple in between the curse on the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree in order to drive home the point that this is Israel. Israel is this fruitless fig tree. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Interesting. The only place in Mark's Gospel that we have the Lord teaching on prayer is right here. You know, when Matthew's got the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount and Luke has all kinds of teaching on prayer scattered throughout his Gospel. But the only place that Mark gives us the teaching of the Lord on prayer is in relationship to the cursing of this fig tree why the temple was where you went to pray there was no prayer going on at the temple the people of israel they were involved in all this religious activity but they didn't have a relationship with god they didn't have faith in god and that showed forth in their lack of prayer and lack of power in prayer jesus is a man apart He is one who knows God. He is one who makes requests of God and who gets his requests answered. He is one who spends much time alone with God in prayer. And he would spend much time alone with God in prayer in the temple if you could, but you can't because of all the religious business. You see here the difference between man-made religion and true religion. And the cursing of the fig tree shows forth not just the judgment of God upon the temple and the people of Israel and their fruitless religion, but it also shows forth the power of Jesus Christ. Fruitless, powerless versus fruitful and powerful. Now, I have to say that much abuse has been made of Jesus' words here by people who don't know God and who are making merchandise of religion today, just like the Jews made merchandise of religion in their time. Those who preach the health and wealth gospel, the word of faith movement, they are twisting Jesus' words here in order to try to do magic. That you can do magic just by believing that God will give you what you want. Well, God didn't give James and John what they wanted when they asked for their request. Jesus said, if you believe that you have it, it will be done for you. And yet James and John, they they didn't have it done for them according to what they had asked. This verse is for people who know God. This verse is for people who love God. This verse is for people who have the fruit of righteousness in their life. It is not for So-called Christians who blaspheme the name of God, who teach falsehood, and who profiteer on religious lies. But it is for you. This verse is for you. Jesus wants you to believe. Jesus recognizes that your problem as a fruitful lover of God is that you have little faith. Now, your little faith has saved you. Your little faith is good. But... If you want to be powerful, if you want to do the works of Jesus Christ, you're going to need more faith in the right person, in the right way. Do you believe that your personal relationship with your Father can change things that are happening in your life and the lives of people around you through persistent prayer? do you really believe in the power of prayer? Or are you too much like me and you just think, well, God's got it all figured out. I'll just trust Him for His providence. I don't really have the wisdom to ask for anything anyway, so I'll just take what He gives and be happy with it. It sounds spiritual. God says to me, and He says to you, have faith in God. If you believe and do not doubt, It will be done for you. Jesus tells you this morning, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Don't let the abuse that others have made of this passage to ask for fleshly requests, selfish requests, take away the actual meaning of the text. That if you know God and you want God's will to be done and you pray for God's will to be done, God will do it. What do you want me to do for you? Is what God says. He wants you to ask. He wants you to beg. He wants you to plead. And he wants to give. We need that kind of faith. You know, our passage this morning started with faith, with blind Bartimaeus, and it ends with faith here, with the cursing of the fig tree. But Jesus also mentions one other thing, the importance of forgiveness. If I have offended you, if you have offended me, forgive. Forgive quickly. Forgive completely. Don't hold anything in your heart against one another. We will offend one another. We will step on one another's toes. We will wrong one another. We are still in the flesh. But this community... If we are going to really let the light of Christ shine, if we are going to be the church of the living God, we must be a forgiving community. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, He taught us to pray every day Father, forgive us our sins, just as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Now, you have forgiveness of sins. Judicially, you are free. And yet, there's a personal relationship there that we need constant forgiveness of sins to maintain that proper communion, that proper fellowship with God. And so, God forgives you, you forgive one another. If you expect not to be wronged in church, you have a wrong expectation. We will wrong you, you will forgive us. That's how it works. (laughs) Take heart. Jesus is calling for you. When you lift up your prayer to God and you cry out to God for help, take heart. Jesus stops and he listens. That's why he came. The whole reason for his procession was to bring sight to the blind, to bring forgiveness to those who are guilty, to bring life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And so his ear is open to your cry. If you know that Jesus Christ is here, cry out. And he will stop and ask you, what do you want me to do for you? And he'll do it because he's gracious. Let's pray. God, I, I want you to renew my faith. And I want you to give me the joy of my salvation. God, I want you to fill our church with a forgiving spirit. Lord, I want you to continue to give us a a unity that glorifies you and that shows that your salvation is real and that Jesus Christ has come and that he's here. God, I want you to send Jesus Christ back. I want his feet to stand on the Mount of Olives. I want him to split it open. And I want him to sit on the throne of David forever. And I believe that you will answer these requests and that you'll give me what I ask for. God, I want you to increase all of our faith and that we would become people of answered prayer because we believe that you are a God who is gracious and powerful and you are our Father. Amen.